Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be going back to the world of literature, and today I'm going to do a little bit different approach than what I had originally planned. I had originally planned to mainly just talk about A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway, but I realized that, you know, we're still sort of in the introductory, and, and I want to keep showing how these literary trends kind of fold into each other. Uh, and this is not only a literary trend, but this is a social trend. Because one of the things you start to see is this moves towards um, the, what what's considered in the 60s the counterculture. Uh, a lot of people who aren't familiar with history of literature, with, uh, you know, some of the more uh, intimate aspects of American history, uh, we're kind of surprised by the 60s counterculture, and it almost seems like it appeared out of nowhere. It came from nothing. But there's actually this is actually something that had been brewing for decades. And really, I mean, if you want to trace it back farther, you can go back to the Romantics, but I'm going to start tracing it in the lost generation of the 1920s. Uh, and in particular, talk a little bit about the, the novel uh, A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. Now, in a movable feast, you start to get something that is uh, 90% autobiography, 10% fiction. You know, there's some parts of it that are fictionalized. Obviously, autobiography is always going to fictionalize a little, simply by the fact of what it chooses to focus on, what it chooses to leave out. Um, But this is also a trend where you're starting to see the dissatisfaction of, of the modern era. Uh, the lost generation were very much people who didn't feel like they belonged. They felt uh, like they were alienated. Um, alienated because none of the old ways of doing things worked, and there wasn't a real good path of where they were going from here. Now, the lost generation writers, most of them left the United States that were American writers and went to Paris. And part of this is they found a culture that was much more receptive to literature, to art, to, you know, different ways of living than what they had seen in America. One of the things about American culture is mainstream American culture has very much been about working, earning money, you know, don't do things that are... uh, not pragmatic as far as earning you a living. If it doesn't earn you a living, then it's it's not a useful uh, endeavor. And this is something that was very different in Europe, because Europe had a high valuation of the arts, of literature, of music, and this was something that really drew the American writers, uh, because they felt uh, that was something lacking in at home. You know, there wasn't the great cultural centers uh, in the United States at the time. So they were kind of not only cast out from the time period, they were in a lot of ways cast out from their home country. Uh, so they went to Europe after World War One and started writing. Now, A Movable Feast, you know, gives you the story of her, uh, Hemingway going to Paris with his wife and meeting Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald and all of the other writers and painters that he uh, met, and it it sh- sort of shows his opening up to a different way of being. Uh, this is really one of the first uh, mainstream writers. He Hemingway is a very much a mainstream writer who starts to look at um, 
a criticism of the culture of the country, a criticism of it just being about working hard and, you know, in a factory or wherever you work or in a bank and making a lot of money. It, it, it's about looking for something deeper than that. And so it starts to break some of the cultural traditions. Even you start to see the breakdown of, you know, relationships between husbands and wives, relationships between friends. And not as much a breakdown, but a, a shifting, a moving in a different direction. What the mainstream would definitely consider a counterculture. And through the 20s, um, you see a lot of this happening, but mainly in Europe. Uh, you know, the uh, there's not a lot of it going on in the United States. The United States is part of the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age. Um, but a lot of the cultural leaders were people who left for a while, went to Europe, and then came back. And the 20s, the Jazz Age, was definitely a time that was against tradition. You know, women were cutting their hair short, they were wearing uh, tight clothing, they were dancing, they were drinking, they were smoking. You know, these are all things that just, you know, five, ten years earlier would have been unheard of in American culture. Um, so th this starts to be a very big shift in culture. And this really does start to open the doors to what comes later in the 60s and later. Now, as we move out of the 60s and into the 30s and into the Great Depression, um, you still have this going on. In fact, it becomes in a lot of ways intensified because of the Depression. Uh, you have a lot of people that start to feel cut loose from society. Now that the financial system has failed too, um, you have a lot more people that are kind of going out and looking for a different way of being, a different way of living that doesn't revolve around money and a job. And you actually start to get a large um, number of people who, you know, go out and uh, start becoming hobos. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with what hobos are, hobos are not exactly the same as homeless people. Homeless people are often homeless not by choice. Uh, hobos are people who are homeless by choice. They don't believe in buying a house, getting a job, settling down, marrying. They see all of that as um, sort of the, the disease and the trap of modern life. Um, they see it as something that makes it impossible to live. So they tend to just travel from place to place, uh, first often on trains, sometimes on you know buses or cars later on. But they don't want to put down too many roots. They want to have a life that's more on their own terms. You know, they work when they have to, if they need a little bit of money, but they don't see being trapped into the nine to five, you know, office or factory as a way of life that's actually living. And you have a lot of folk singers and, and people that are, you know, talking about this lifestyle. Woody Guthrie is one. He has a lot of songs about this. And Guthrie himself, you know, lived this lifestyle quite a bit, traveling around with his friends, you know, writing music, performing here and there, uh, basically working when he had to. <clears throat> and this is, you know, these people, the, the lost generation and the, you know, the generation like Woody Guthrie that was in, these are people that the 60s generation were looking back towards as kind of guides, as kind of heroes. You know, if you think about Bob Dylan, who was, you know, one of the largest songwriters in the 60s, wrote 
hits for everybody, including himself. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan grew up idolizing Woody Guthrie. He was that was his who he wanted to pattern himself after. Um, so this these traditions that pop up in the '60s didn't just pop up out of nowhere. There is a long tradition of this, a long tradition of criticizing the typical way of living. Um, in the '30s, you also have you know, Henry Miller starting to write into the '30s and early '40s. Um, Air Conditioned Nightmare is, is a book that he wrote after he returned from Europe because he had left, you know, the United States to try and, you know, sort of see what it is to be alive, see what it is to be a writer. And because of World War II breaking out, he's sort of forced to return to the United States. Um, and he writes Air Conditioned Nightmare. He starts it out as kind of being his uh, farewell note you know, to the United States is he would, he planned on seeing the country and then leaving it again forever. Uh, well, he does end up staying after that, but he does in that book. Uh, and I've talked about this in an earlier podcast, he kind of travels around and looks at, you know, the good and the bad of the United States. He sees how much of a trap the nine to five life is, how people living that life are just going through the motions. They're not really alive. Uh, they're almost, you know, robotic he talks about the commercialism, how it's basically poisoning everything. He, you know, directly talks about the fact that, you know, the United States is one of the most hostile places to be if you're a writer, because, you know, when you tell somebody you're a writer or a painter or a musician or whatever it is, you know, unless you can say, and I'm making millions of dollars, you know, most people will look at you as if you're wasting your time. They'll look at you as if you're wasting your entire life. And so this is something that he addresses in the air-conditioned nightmare, how there's a lot of hostility towards being a writer, towards being an artist, even towards just being someone who doesn't want to get trapped into that, you know, work, marriage, bed routine, you know, that, that most of the country is trapped in. <clears throat> now, uh, Miller and the Lost Generation uh, become very influential on another group of writers. Um, the, the next group of writers that really sort of take up into this tradition are the, the what are known as the Beatniks, the Beat Generation. Uh, you have Jack Kerouac writing On the Road. Um, this is very much a novel about, you know, people who are, who feel trapped in, you know, New York. They're, they're in New York is where the start of this. And they want to head out and see what there is, you know, to see what other kind of, you know, life there is to be had. Uh, and in On the Road, all of the characters have fictional names, but all of these fictional people are real people. They're based on uh, Kerouac and his friends, Neil Cassidy and Allen Ginsberg and, you know, uh, various other people that they associated with. So again, going back similar to A Movable Feast, similar to the writings of Henry Miller, you have this blending of autobiography with, um, you know, fiction. And you also have this uh, deep-seated uh, uh, dislike of conventional life, this this need to go out and find something different. And as you move into the 60s, 
with the 60s counterculture, you know, this trend continues. So as you're looking at the people writing in the 60s, the, the you know, authors, the musicians, uh, these people are highly influenced by the lost generation, um, you know, Henry Miller and his generation in the 30s and 40s, uh, the beat generation, you know, all of these people sort of provide um, what becomes the 60s. Now, going also from the, you know, civil rights movement that, that comes along in the 60s, this is also, you know, reinforced by writers who are, you know, kind of breaking away from tradition somewhat. Uh, you have the, you know, Harlem Renaissance, uh, African-American writers that come out in the 30s and the 40s. They are very influential on the civil rights movement. You have the, you know, uh, novelists, the African-American novelists that come out, um, you know, Richard Wright. And, um, you know, they, they write these novels that, uh, you know, make people think about things differently. They write these novels that kind of show the perspective from an African-American perspective. Uh, and, and it's not the kind of African-American perspective that you see in movies and books like Gone with the Wind, where this is sort of a, you know, a fake perspective, a, perspe- a perspective of uh, African-American life from the way white people project it. You know, the, the writers of the Harlem Renaissance, Richard Wright, uh, County Cullen, um, all, all of these writers are giving very much authentic black perspectives of how life is. And music even plays into this because a lot of folk music and jazz and blues, you know, are talking about everyday life, not from the, you know, glamorized, glorified perspective of the mainstream, but from the perspective of how people are actually living, how African-Americans were actually living, how poor whites were actually living, you know, and, and you start to have all of these influences that start pouring into making the 60s what they are. Um, the 60s is very much, the 60s counterculture is very much about reproducing an identity, uh, individual identity, but also an identity that shows how the people are connected together. Um, you know, how all of the groups are connected together. This is why a lot of the sixties music, um, and, and writing talks about people getting together. Um, because prior to that it had been, okay, you can get together in nine to five jobs, but White people have to be over here, black people have to be over here, and there can be no mixing. Uh, there, you know, this is towards the end of when segregation starts to be dismantled. Uh, so you have a lot of different things pouring into the counterculture. And a lot of it comes from the world of literature and it comes from the world of music. You know, literature and music have always been areas that were in a lot of ways, counterculture. Uh, you have some things that are mainstream that are kind of holding up society and saying, look at us, how wonderful we are, we're perfect in every way. But for the most part, that's not what you see in literature and music. If you get beyond the realm of, you know, 
which you'd call the top 40 music or the, um, you know, the uh, novels of manners, uh, what you often have is a critique of what's going on. Uh, when you show society as it is, you don't show it as, boy, this is wonderful looking. It's often shown as, yeah, this is how it is, and really we need to do something about this. So the idea that the 60s sprang out of nowhere, um, that counterculture was just, you know, this is just something that was born in the 60s. This isn't something that had been brewing really since the Romantic period and started to pick up steam about the time of the Lost Generation and the Jazz Age and blues. Now, when, you know, one of the big uh, supposed controversies right now, which I don't see it as controversial because it's just talking about the truth, is the whole idea of critical race theory. Um, Critical race theory uh, has the conservatives up in arms. They are screaming about how this is going to destroy society. It's going to create more problems than anything. And if you've actually studied it, if you've actually looked at it, it basically talks about life from the perspective of how did race shape things. Um, And if you don't understand that, and if you don't look at that, it kind of becomes difficult to understand why people um, have ended up in the places they've ended up, why they uh, feel excluded the way they feel excluded. Um, And if you don't have an understanding of these things, you can't start to remedy these things. You know, one of the things about the whole counterculture movement is it has always been, whether you're talking about the the white writers, the African-American writers, whatever writers of any tradition, they've always been trying to wake people up to the reality of the way things are going aren't as polished and shiny as everybody tries to say that there's a lot of um, superficiality in this, that there's a lot of marginalization of people in this, and that people, if they want to do well in the mainstream, one, have to be born the right race, and two, have to be born lucky. Uh, Other than that, you should just be thankful for things being the way they are and not being worse. The counterculture has always said, no, there's you know, we refuse to accept this. There has to be more to life than this. And we're going to sort of break away from the everyday routine and we're going to find out what that better way is. You know, how we can all exist more authentically. And this also blends into, and we'll talk about it more when we talk about existentialism, a lot of the ideas of existentialism are also based around authentic living, authentic being, instead of just playing a role. So you you really do see a huge tradition coming from every direction in the 20th century that leads to the counterculture. And you also see a backlash, um, and you see the conservative backlash, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, all the way through the present of people who want everybody just to go back to sleep and, you know, then we can get back to what it was in the good old days. But when you read these literatures, you listen to these songs, um, the music, you know, the music, the art, you realize that the good old days were never happy good old days for everyone. Um, The good old days have that, you know, false luster of nostalgia. But people who were actually there, 
we're really fighting and hoping for something better. Um, and to think that going back there is better than what we have is, is kind of a delusion. And this is why the counterculture has really been picking up steam throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. And also why the reaction against it has been trying to pick up steam, especially recently. Okay, I'm going to break off for there. Uh, I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.